Conveyancing Coffee Break, the bite-sized podcast for busy conveyancing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance. My name is Mandy Brown, and during these episodes, we'll be discussing topical and relevant issues and case studies on a whole raft of conveyancing subjects. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Convancing Coffee Break with me, Mandy Brown and Richard Snape. Hello. Today, we have Emma Shamaradian from Taylor Rose joining us again to ask Richard some questions following on from the Building Safety Act 2022 revisited conference we had when we couldn't answer all of the questions. We could, but we didn't have time. It sounds like I didn't know the answer. (laughs) We, we well we ran over anyway so uh, now we thought we'd do a podcast to answer those outstanding questions so i'm going to hand over to emma and richard hi thank you for having me again we've got a lot of questions still coming through a lot of confusion on the building safety act so if i just dive straight in with one of the first questions that we've had put to us it's really surrounding the height of the building and the issue of determining whether a building is four stories five stories or 11 meters so question is we have a building where the landlord is disputing that the building safety act applies it's clearly five stories but they're saying they've measured it to the floor of the fifth flat then it's under 11 metres. So what do you suggest that, you know, conveyancers should do when they come up against uh, confusion over the height of the building, Richard? I'd be tempted to say leave it to surveyors, but um, there is a lot of confusion. It's not helped by the lender's handbook, just not distinguishing between the various you know, heights and likes. And also people like Barclays. I wish Barclays, after all these months, would really, you know, know how to spell stories because they've still got it as a, you know, a work of fiction, which is quite apt, actually, for their part twos. But uh, it's alternatives it's 11 meters or five stories and then there's definitions of you know how you come to decide in sections 117 and 118 is really the legislation whether it's uh, 11 meters or five stories bizarrely if it's 11 meter i mean you're supposed to for instance in deciding whether it's 11 meters or more in height ignore any basement that is where the um, ceiling is uh, beneath ground level. You're supposed to measure from the the sort of lowest part of the bottom of the building, but not to the top of the building, bizarrely. You're supposed to measure to the floor of the top story. I think that's what's causing some issues, certainly on some of the transactions I've had, because you get often not a lot of information to go by. I've had surveyors telling me that they're simply not going to take on that liability of measuring the height of a building. So if you do struggle to get that information from them, another part of the you know information we can look at, I've seen, is the fire risk assessment that will often tell you sometimes if they uh, do yeah. are able to but that will not tell you exactly where the measurements taken from so it might be from the ground floor to the roof yeah the fire risk assessment the way that they measure under the fire risk assessment is not necessarily the way that the measurements are supposed to be under the act another sort of badly drafted part of the legislation is it's got the same problems as for higher risk buildings you know the 18 meters or seven stories and height buildings and they are alternatives but if you read it, it's either 11 metres or five storeys. So even if it's not 11 metres in height, it's got five storeys. The legislation still applies. The um, And you're supposed to, in terms of measuring the number of storeys, again, you sort of ignore any story that's solely beneath ground level. And if the top floor has got plant and machinery in it and nothing else, you're supposed to ignore that. So there's a lot of buildings out there that are you know, not 11 metres in height, but still within the legislation because they're five storeys. And there, there are buildings out there that might be four stories in height, but still come within the legislation because they're more than 11 metres or more in height. 
Mm. I think one of the issues as well people do face is when there is that confusion, certainly where you've got a four-story building, there's still confusion, like you say. You don't know whether it's 11 metres. A lot of people are asking what in that instance should they do? Should they insist on the certificates and uh, the requirements under the Building Safety Act, you know, insist that that's carried out just to be on the safe side? The trouble is the, the landlords are going to just say no to you. I'd want the landlord's certificate anyway and sort of serve the building holders' deeds to certificate. And if the landlord's got it wrong, then they can't add the cost of uh, safety work to service charge. Yeah, I think that's essentially, certainly for my own transactions, and I know some other people in the, in the industry have said the same thing, that, you know, they can't determine, they'll get the seller to serve the certificate and then wait and see if the landlord doesn't respond then they would, you know, within 28 days, which they're required to, then they'll forfeit their right to transfer the costs, if there are any, in the future to the leaseholder. Is that the correct understanding? Well, yeah, they've got full, um, if you request the landlord for the certificate where yeah. it's a qualifying lease, and that's obviously the question mark in a relevant building. And if they don't respond within, within four weeks, they, they can't add the cost of service charge. Okay. Another question was, again, in terms of the height, if you know that the property is below five stories, but there are additional blocks on the same estate that exceed five stories and they're owned by the same landlord or management company, is it then a case of the flat, which, you know, the building that the flat is located in, if that one is below five stories, that one would not then fall under the act and you don't need to then get these certificates? Or is it the estate and the building in terms of the block as a whole? It's that particular building, but unfortunately, there's a sort of definition of what constitutes a building. You know, if it's sort of completely separate, self-contained blocks, it's that individual building that's got to be, you know, 11 metres or five storeys. But if they have connecting passageways apart from fire escapes and the likes, then it could still be, you know, one building when it looks like two, you know, neighbouring buildings and the likes. I don't know about you, Emma. I don't know when this became part of conveyancing to decide yeah. whether something's a building or not. And it's certainly not within, you know, the sort of different titles and, you know, or the same title and different buildings. Yeah, exactly. It's difficult. There's more and more things that conveyances now have to deal with uh, which is a shame and especially when the industry as a whole you know is taking on a lot and transaction times are just taking exceeding what they ought to it's becoming a more stressful process for clients more stressful process for conveyances and um, the time frames to reach a successful completion now just seem to be extended more and more but it's a shame we've got a market that's now you know going downwards we've got mortgage companies sort of getting very much more jittery i see the hsbc a couple of weeks back sort of added to their you know produce their part twos in relation to leaseholder protections and they've gone the same way as barclays and nationwide i'm not sure you can actually report and, uh, this legislation is, could be the last straw that Breaks the camel mm. in relation to the leasehold flat conveyancing. I know mm. of increasing numbers of firms who won't do flats unless it's three stories or less blocks. That includes places like London as well. Well, exactly. That's the, another question I know we've had previously is so what should people do? Which obviously is a matter for the individual firms, I suppose, to determine where they place the risk and how they want to combat that. But yeah, like you say, a lot of people are just now not dealing with it or if they do take on the transactions, uh, leasehold transactions over four or five stories, then it comes at an additional expense then to the clients. The things are just getting more expensive because the risk is higher. I think a lot of firms might need to make a decision when their PI insurance comes up for renewal. Because the yeah. is, uh, I mean, we talk to insurers about it and uh, I think some people are in for a rude awakening. But anyway, that's for another day.
We've got, uh, yeah, more questions about sort of obstructions from the landlord in providing their certificates, whether or not the property is a relevant building, whether that's determined or not. In either case, if you have to request a certificate from the landlord on occasions, we are coming up against refusal or actually even requests for payment of their fees to produce the information. Is that something that you think is uh, legal or something that they're able to do under the legislation? Well, it's a difficult one again. Whether they, you know, what happens if it's obvious? You know, let's assume it is a relevant building, the right height, and so on. And uh, you are getting landlords point blank refusing, as you say, to just provide the landlord certificates. The sanction for it would be again that you can't charge via service charge for defects if you did that. It does say at the bottom of the landlord certificates, like it does on the leaseholder deeds of certificate, that you know if you admit to say things or you do say things knowingly wrong, I forget the exact wording, then you could be prosecuted under the Fraud Act. If you omit to, to actually provide the landlord certificate, you could be prosecuted under Section 3 of the Fraud Act, but only if you intend or to make a profit for yourself or for another person, which is unlikely to be the case. I've come across one first-tier tribunal case late last year. It's a case called um, Number 16, The Grove, Isleworth, where they did actually go to the tribunal, which seems to be envisaged in, you can do in Schedule 8 of the, the, the the Building Safety Act, to uh, try to make the landlord, you know, in order to make the landlord provide the landlord certificate, but the tribunal said, we don't think we've got any jurisdiction through it out. I say that seems to be the, the real sanction at the moment. If the landlord's calculated to make a profit, they're committing a criminal offence. Well, that's, I, I doubt whether much is going to happen with that. Otherwise, um, there doesn't seem to be much to do apart from the fact that if the landlord gets it wrong, they can't charge via service charge for safety work. Yeah, I think from what I've seen under the legislation or not seen is that there doesn't seem to be any mention of on what terms the landlord can provide their certificate it just simply seems to state that they must do so within 28 days so i suppose in the absence of anything else if they don't provide it within 28 days because they've not received their fee which they claim is to be paid i can't see how that would be acceptable it's a case of if they fail then they aren't able to cover the pass on the remediation costs yeah, um, but they say there's you know a few a few cases, but there'll be there'll be very few at the moment because the legislation is so new. So I suppose it's one of those where we'll perhaps more information will come through later down the line when actually some of these cases come to be challenged. Yeah, I mean they desperately need to amend it. You know there yeah. is there are some draft amendment regulations. In England we're saying that you know the height of the building is just. You know, we're still waiting for the Welsh Government to say anything about the height of building, definitely. So they're in complete impasse in Wales. But um, there is some draft leaseholder protections amendment England regs, which are only at draft stage at the moment, which intend to change the landlord's certificates, but not in relation to that. It's basically saying if the landlord's got... Uh, a net worth per affected building together with all their associates of more than £2 million, they're the ones who have to pay for any safety work. You know, the caps are not relevant, or if the flat is worth less than 175,000 or 325,000 in London on February the 14th, 2022, you know, you can't charge for safety work. And so the plan is, and it makes sense actually, but, uh, the plan is that in those circumstances, the landlord should still have to provide the certificate, but not all the supporting documentation, not details of the accounts and any associated companies and the likes. We'll have to see when that comes in. I think it will come in, but not until well into the summer, not the autumn. Do you know much about the, uh, there was another mention of uh, changes to the legislation in terms of the uh, lease extensions and, um, you know, the fact that leases would be surrendered and regranted and therefore would uh, 
uh, yeah. these flats would then lose their lose out on the rights uh, technically to benefit from this act. I understand that there was some amendments to the legislation in that regard, but do you but, have much information on where we're at with that? They changed the guidance at the end of April on it and basically said you should make your client aware if they go for a lease extension, you know, post February the 13th, 2022, they'll lose their leaseholder protections. And the guidance suggested that you should ask the landlord to include terms in the, the lease, giving the same service charge caps as if you know, in the new lease, as if the, the right. legislation still applies, but that's only guidance. Some landlords are accepting that and lots aren't accepting that. They've got no reason to do so, but you can complain to the department of levelling up if the landlord doesn't accept and Michael Gove will go around and sort the landlord out. There's no reason to need to do that. They say they're going to introduce amending legislation when parliamentary time dictates they can. In early, in, well, in the middle of May, the government announced that they were going to go through this overhaul of leasehold enfranchisement legislation. And I don't know, but I suspect that's going to be next parliamentary year that doesn't start until the autumn. It'll take a long time to go through parliament, but I suspect they're going to crog it onto that. They're going to just introduce something, but not until the next parliamentary year. Well, let's hope whatever does come out is a bit clearer than what was initially released. Yeah, the other thing you mentioned is about the landlords charging costs, actually, you know, these things. Because a, you know, a big landlord, I know landlords, you know, are supposed to produce evidence at the moment, at least of all the associated companies and accounts. Like, I know of landlords in some of the big cities who've got 500 associate companies all over the world. And that would cost an absolute fortune in those circumstances. It's not directly clear as to whether you can add the cost of to, to the work to the, you know, to the tenants and the likes and the leaseholders. But there is a provision in Schedule 8, it's paragraph 9 of the, the legislation, that says you can't charge via service charge for any legal or other professional services. And it's just whether you can construe admin costs mm-hmm. you know, for producing the landlord certificate as legal or other professional services. I think right. if that's a tribunal, I think they'd say it would. Will come within that. Service charge is also defined as, as in Section 18 of the 85 Landlord and Tenant Act, you know, and, and it includes the landlord's costs of management. Mm. Another question mark, then, isn't it? It's just not clear. It was rushed through this last, mm. this part of the legislation at the very last moment. There was no parliamentary scrutiny whatsoever. It's absolutely mm. disastrous. The other issue is, you know, if you do go back to this ambiguity, or otherwise, maybe there doesn't need to be any ambiguity, even if it is a, a relevant building. If the sellers serve their certificate, you know, is it advisable for uh, conveyances to ensure that before moving on, they get proof of postage just to make sure? Because something can be served, but would it actually, it doesn't necessarily mean it's been received by the mm-hmm. landlord. That's another problem in the legislation. Most big pieces of legislation have sort of a section towards the end on what constitutes service. You know, it's not there. It doesn't directly say whether the landlord's agents, you know, the solicitors can serve the pizza certificate. I think it's good practice, you know, to have proof of posting. Mm. The default provision is usually the Law of Property Act, Section 196, which basically says if it's you send recorded special delivery and it's returned, it's deemed not to be served. But uh, I think you, I'd, I'd want to you know, proof of service, yeah. Yeah, good practice. So what do you do when the landlord is the same as the seller? This was an interesting question. When the landlord's the same as the seller and the property is not a new build, so it is going to be um, relevant, can the landlord issue both the leaseholder deed of certificate and the landlord's certificate in that instance? Well, on himself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the way, I mean, I can't see anything other than, you know, you'd have to, quite honestly, it seems bizarre. Mm. 
Yeah. Just another point missed out from the legislation, isn't it? You know, in practice, when these circumstances arise, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, well, there's lots of it in this legislation that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's been my life for the last seven months. <laughs> And what about an executor? I think we did mention executor sales previously on our last podcast, but it is a returning question and query. People do get confused, understandably. Can an executor serve the leaseholder certificate where the proprietor died before 14th of February 2022? Is that covered in the legislation at all? It's another one they forgot is basically the person who is, you know, the leaseholder you know, determining whether they're qualifying or not is the person who held the lease on February the 14th, 2022, at the beginning of the day. And if that happened to be an executor because the flat owner died a couple of weeks previously, that's it's the executor. Mm. It's the executor's information because they haven't even dealt with the fact. Because lots of solicitors who you know, act as executors have been asking me about this. It's not an executor here and now today. It was the, the executor you know, on February the 14th last year. And uh, if they've got, unless it's their principal home, which is pretty unlikely, unless if they you know, had three dwellings or more than three dwellings in, you know, throughout the UK, uh, it's not a qualifying lease. And um, the executor is an executor to four properties, or if the executor is an executor to three properties and they've got a house themselves that they live in, then it seems that it's not a qualifying lease and it's blighted forevermore. Mm, seems incredibly unfair. It's the same for, we haven't thought about company tenants. You know, a lot of buy-to-let investments are bought through companies because, you know, there's the a sort of trade-off between paying more stamp duty land tax and additional dwelling surcharge and saving on all the other taxes. Mm -hmm. And companies can't be residents, you know, it can't be a company's principal home. And if the company's got more than three dwellings throughout the UK, and it's not qualified. Mm. I've even thought about trustees and beneficiaries. Their trust, what about discretionary trust? It's ridiculous. So many different scenarios, you know, mm. with uh, who can be selling the property under what circumstances, and the legislation just doesn't cover it. It's just far too simplistic. Uh, so it leaves a lot of questions for people, which doesn't help. I've got a point about uh, shared ownership transactions. So for a resale shared ownership transaction, uh, certain housing associations have advised that they won't be providing the landlord's deed of certificate because their policy is simply that they won't pass on the cost to the shared ownership leaseholders. So is it acceptable to accept that response or would you you know, suggest that people still do insist on having the certificate served anyway? Well, if they don't serve it before when they want to carry out works on defects and if they don't serve it you know, within four weeks of a request or four weeks of finding out there's a limit off in, then they can't charge for safety works. So in that instance, then, to make sure that the leaseholder is covered, the leaseholder should still serve their certificate. And of course, then, if the landlord doesn't respond within the required time frame, then they simply won't be entitled. Yeah. I think they could get in trouble if they're a housing association. If they don't do that, quite honestly... I've come across it enough times, you know, housing association just point blank refusing to have anything to do with it. <laughs> One way of dealing with it, I suppose, but um, perhaps it's not the land, if there's any doubt whatsoever, I think it's in the landlord's best interest to serve the landlord's certificates. It's just that, you know, I can understand in some occasions, if they don't have any intention of charging for, for the defects, you know, then fine. Mm. But um, with that proviso, it's always in the landlord's best interest. Mm -hmm. It's just that mm. as it stands at the moment, you know, the amount of information a large landlord has to provide unless they draft regulations you know, when they come in, if and when they come in, change it, then is enormous and very costly for the landlords. And landlords don't want people to know which 500 associate companies they own and uh, what the profits mm. of each of those companies are. Yeah, I think there's also with some properties 
the landlords certain sometimes just don't want to, like you say, give the information out if they consider that there's a sufficiently low risk that there will ever be a requirement for remediation costs. So sometimes we're provided with EWS ones that do confirm that there's a low or no risk for remedial works and a response from the landlord then to say that they're not going to be providing anything because it's not required because the EWS one doesn't at that time suggest that there is a requirement for work. But unfortunately, the Building Safety Act doesn't yeah. differentiate, I suppose, between a property that requires remediation works and one that doesn't yeah. it's just if the building is high yeah. enough this is a process to follow well it's not just fire safety as the ews ones i mean landlords can't charge via service charge for the removal and replacement of external combustible cladding that should be governed by the either the government's remediation scheme if the building's 18 meters or more in height which is again in england not wales or 11 meters and more in height the, the developers should pay for the remediation work eventually. They just passed the regulations a couple of days ago, three days ago, in relation to that on July the 4th. We're on, is it the 7th? The 7th day, yeah. But uh, this is building safety generally. It's not just combustible cladding. It's structure and collapse and this kind of stuff and fire safety outside cladding. So I think the EWS ones are one factor. But there's yeah. other factors. The mortgage companies don't understand that either. Mm -hmm. And then I think people get lost well not lost but you know it, it's seen almost as though because this, this legislation applies to buildings of five stories or 11 meters those that are three stories people seem to maybe assume well everything's okay but actually you can still have fire safety issues and cladding problems with uh, blocks of flats that are lower and unfortunately they just won't actually have the protections under this act so if there are remediation costs for a property that is only three stories and that's heavily clad although it's less likely and the cost is probably going to be lower than if it was a big block it's still a risk for a client so it's still very yeah. much something I mean, to, you still make the client aware of the, you know, the yeah. sort of liability and what it might be yeah i think we're, we've done basically all the questions so yeah well, thanks, Emma. That was an interesting little debate. Thank you both for your time today. We've definitely covered a lot of ground. And um, here's an interesting fact to end on. The last podcast we did on this subject with both you and Emma has been the most downloaded podcast from the whole series with over 750 individual downloads. Yeah, we're, so, we're close to Ed Sheeran now on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it'll be interesting to see if this one beats it. Again, thank you very much both. And until next time. listening to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break, the only podcast for busy convincing professionals, brought to you by Lawshaw Insurance Brokers, an award-winning UK provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshawinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings.